Let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Acts, chapter 26 of the book of Acts. The books of Acts being written by the Holy Spirit through the hand of Luke, who in, a for, in, the, in the gospel, according to Luke, wrote of the things that Jesus began both to teach and to do, and in Acts... He is now led of the Spirit to write of the things that Jesus continued to teach and to do from heaven, and that through the apostolic ministry. And here in Acts chapter 26, as we've considered last time, we have the ministry of Jesus through the Apostle Paul as he stands before King Agrippa and Festus, and as he is an example here of someone who is converted and who seeks the conversion of all before whom he stands. Acts 26, we want to consider this in light of the Heidelberg Catechism teaching on conversion and in light of the rest of the Bible's teaching on that wonderful truth of conversion of souls. Hear the word of God at Acts 26. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today... I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, especially because you are expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. They knew me from the first, if they were willing to testify that, according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise, our twelve tribes, earnestly serving God night and day, hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme, and being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities." While thus occupied as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, along the road I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we all had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So I said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. 
Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. For these reasons, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand, witnessing both to small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that the Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead, and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Now, as he thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. For the king before whom I also speak freely knows these things, for I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention, since this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. As far we read the word of God, the basis for our instruction in the Heidelberg Catechism's instruction on conversion, speaking of the putting off of the old, the putting on of the new man, and we will delve into that subject presently. But this is the subject, the subject of the sermon tonight, as it was last time, of conversion. And that conversion for us by way of review and for those who may be visiting tonight is the turning of the soul by God from sin to God. That's what conversion is. It's a turning and transformation of the soul, the body following. Acts 26, 18 when it's said as a summary of all that the Bible has to say about conversion, a summary, Acts 26, 18, Paul's calling from Jesus to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. This is a summary of conversion, the opening of the eyes of Jew or Gentile, sinners alike, in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. This was Jesus' calling of Paul. He was to be a converter of souls, him having been converted. And as he goes on in his speech to Agrippa, he tells him that this is what he did, first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles, preaching that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. In other words, the converted one was seeking the conversion of all to whom uh, there was an open door to go to. This is a most important subject. And again, this is by way of introduction, but it is review, and it leads into the main part of the sermon tonight. A most important subject is conversion, central to the gospel of Old and New Testament. The apostle, or the, the King David himself, the psalmist, and we sang of that in Psalm 51, speaks of his own conversion, of his need for washing thoroughly and for his holding in his sin in 
unconverted state, even though he was a child of God, he was not yet brought back from his sin. And then he speaks of the fact that he then acknowledged his sins, he confessed them, and he confessed the evil that this was before God. And then he spoke of the thrill that he would have when God would answer his prayer to convert him and restore the joy of salvation, that he could teach transgressors the ways of God so that sinners would be converted to God. Psalm 51, verse 13. This is also the hope of the prophet Joel of the nations, that they would be converted. Joel chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, be converted with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. So rend your hearts and not your garment. Return to the God, Lord your God, for he's gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and so on. So the Old Testament is full of this thing called conversion of Jew and of Gentile through the conversion of the Jews. Jesus himself, the fulfiller of all things old in this establishment of the new covenant, reminded the people in Matthew 18 and verse 3 that except they be converted and become as a little child, they would not enter into the kingdom of heaven. There must be this turning from darkness to light and to God to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, Paul, we have been considering, is the outstanding New Testament model of what it is to be converted. He had this exceptional experience of the converting power of God on the Damascus road out to persecute the church, persecuting Jesus himself, because when you persecute Jesus, you, you, you persecute him. And there he was, and Jesus appeared to him at, 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 the, at midday in this bright and shining light, far brighter than the sun itself. And he arrested Paul, stopped him dead in his tracks, and rebuked him and turned his soul to Jesus Christ for the conversion of nations. Acts 26, before us, which we've taken as our passage on which to speak a few things of the subject of conversion, is the fifth of Paul's great apologies, public apologies or defenses of the gospel and calling people before whom he defends the gospel in the book of Acts. This is the greatest and outstanding apologia or defense of Paul who is speaking here before kings as he did before Festus, now before King Agrippa, and testifying of the great truth of Jesus, his cross, his resurrection, and of the need to be converted. The setting is remarkable. Paul the apostles in chains, children, he's in chains, he's bound up and he's bound also by decree to go to Rome because he has sought that permission to go and testify by, before the Roman emperor. But now he testifies and gets a hearing before other lesser delegates and prelates so that uh, he could have a hearing before them. But he's, there he is, Paul, little Paul or uh, non-orator Paul, whatever you want to describe. He's not much as far as appearance goes, and probably not so much as speaking goes. But what a great big gospel he has, the gospel of his own testimony of what happened to him when Jesus met him, and the testimony, the thrill of God in his heart, of the Jesus who was crucified 
and risen for him. He's saying as another bright light, having seen the light, Jesus, right into the eyes of, of Agrippa looking and into the ears of Agrippa speaking things from heaven. And beloved, this testimony of an apostle and of the man converted is that which we would follow as we consider and continue to consider this truth of conversion. One by way of review, that which it is, true conversion, that we want to summarize things. Then the work of it, that'll be the bulk of the sermon. Then the result of this converted and converting among the people of God. Conversion, we said, is that which happens to a regenerated man or woman or child. We are born again by the Holy Spirit, John 3. We are born again and we cannot enter or see the kingdom of heaven, John 3, unless we be regenerated. But Jesus also likens regeneration to conversion. When he says in Matthew 18, except you be converted, become as a little child, by the grace of God, of course, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. We know from the rest of the Bible that conversion is an ongoing work. It's not just a reference to regeneration, that is, the birth, the new birth of a child of God, but conversion is a reference to an ongoing turning by God of sinners to himself. But at this point, in the work of God in our salvation, conversion involves us. Regeneration is upon us and in us, and all of God in the Holy Spirit, so that we have new life. Just as the man and the woman conceives seeds, so the Holy Spirit conceives the seed of life in us, and we are born again with nothing to do with it. But then conversion involves us, so that there's this God who works in us to turn us increasingly through us, so that God works in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. God works in us to be sorry for sin, to rejoice in things divine and things lovely and things of good report, to turn from our sin unto God. That's repentance. Sorrowing for sin, we grieve. We grieve as God does. Rejoicing in righteousness, we rejoice. We rejoice as God does. That's the work of the Holy Spirit through us. So there is this participation that doesn't make salvation depend on us, but it recognizes the fact that salvation includes us. And so God, who is sovereign, works in us this responsibleness, this responsibility, and this activity of conversion. The Catechism describes conversion, this part, or this um, work of God in us, as comprised of two parts. First, the mortification of the old man, and then the quickening of the new. And we've said last time that when we are born again, all things are new. We're this new entity. We have a new identity in Jesus Christ. And so that everything has passed away, everything old has passed away, we are no longer Adamic, we are Christ-like. However, we have this old man and this new man. And we can yield to the old man, the flesh, or the carnality that still remains in us, or we can yield to the new man and thus live out the life of that new creature in Christ. 
And so this involves us. And so there's this putting off of what still is sinful. So we're born again, but we're not perfect. We're still sinful, so we put off the old man. In fact, the Bible says we kill him. The mortification of the old man. That's how the Bible describes it in Romans 8, 13. It says that putting away sin is a crucifixion of the flesh. Terrible activity that goes on, but gruesome and bloody, but it needs to be done. And this with regard to our own lives. Anybody ever accuses you of being judgmental, you say to them, you've never seen anything yet as far as I judge myself and condemn myself as I stand in Adam as our form for the supper says, we abhor ourselves in Adam. That is, we cannot stand but detest every bit of sin in ourselves. But then we, we put on the new man. And these things we've brought out are, are brought together in, in the Bible. They, they speak of this conversion process in Ephesians 4, for example, verses 22, 23. The truth is in Jesus we are to put off concerning our former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which was created according to God into righteousness and holiness. This is conversion. And this is the process, the negative and the positive of it. Just a few things about this. First of all, this conversion is a spiritual work by the Holy Spirit, and for the accomplishment of spiritual things in us. It's not just the putting away of tobacco or alcohol or losing weight, even in the name of Jesus. For Jesus' sake, I'm going to lose weight. That's not necessarily conversion. could be that you just want to look better, and fasting is so that you can look better. But the work of true conversion is spiritual, and it has these these aims of the Holy Spirit himself who would lead us in being converted to be more like Jesus, transformed and converted into his image, that is, like a son of God. So we put away the lesser things of this earth, and you don't have to be a minister to do this. In fact, you have to do this. You, this, this is your calling as a child of God. You put away the things that are evil and that are not Christ-like, that are not proper and fitting for sons of God, and you put on the things, and you do the things that are fitting uh, for sons of God. Works befitting repentance, the apostle calls them. Worked in our heart of man, involves us, involves our whole person. You see, this is what we want to emphasize as next week, God willing, and for 20 weeks or so to come, we focus on the truth of thankfulness. Conversion is at the heart of the thankful life. You see, we could spout off the commandments and we, can, we know them by heart and we could say we keep them outwardly. We could say we're people of prayer and even offer prayers, but the conversion of a soul is primary. The work of the Holy Spirit so that we obey the work of the Holy Spirit so that we pray. This is vital, and this is why at this point in the catechism we're led into this instruction of conversion and why yours truly is taking such time with it. But then conversion, because it's spiritual, is by the truth. Oh, so important. By the word of God. Jesus prays to the Father, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. 
sanctify them, make them holy so that the Holy Spirit leads to the Bible and we begin to think upon the Bible. And lo and behold, the more we think upon this miraculous word, we understand it's true and it's true for us and it's powerful. The word says, be holy. So we think of this before we go into the bar. The word says, rejoice in God. We think of this before we turn on the music. Words, the word of God, the principles of scripture are something we want to inculcate into our children and young people as well before they get into the backseat of a Dodge, before they go off this way and that way and the other way. A principled people is what we would have and be for the thankful life of a Christian. So by the minds, we appropriate the truth. Be transformed by the renewing of your minds, Paul says in Romans 12. And then may the body follow so that you're not this one who says, yes, I'm intellectually converted and I understand the doctrine of Calvinism and so. No, so that you live your Christian life and your body says so. Your body Follows your mind, which follows your heart, which follows the word, which is led by the Holy Spirit of Christ. Your body, presented as an offering to God, that is everything. All of your body parts, all of your hand activities, and all your eyes, where are they going, and all your ears, little ears and big ears, and, and all the sexual organs that you have. This is converted man's concern. And then this is for the bearing of the good fruit, the good fruit of God. As the Catechism reminds us in question 90, the quickening of the new man is a sincere joy in heart in God through Christ and with love and delight to live according to the will of God in all good works. So you say you're sorry for sin? You say you're really turning from sin? Where's your good works? Where's the fruit of this godly sorrow? Not to merit anything with God, but to show that you are godly. And now we're not talking about perfect works, but the work of grace that is begun in you and continues in you and in me. Now the work. The converted convert. This is what the Apostle Paul is teaching here, and God, through him, is teaching here in Acts chapter 26. Now, two things, just two aspects of this I want to focus on. First, the work of conversion is a conversion of yourself. Second, the calling and work of conversion is a conversion of the nations, those two things, yourself, and then we go to the nations and even internationally. This is our calling as converted ones, to convert yourself. Now, that sounds selfish, and that sounds Arminian or Pelagian. Go convert yourself. Well, that's exactly what the Catechism is stressing to us, and the Bible does. You... Put on the old new man. You put off the old. You present your body as a living sacrifice. How much more direct can we, can we get? 
can God himself get? He's talking to you and you and you and to me, yours truly. Now, this needs to be stressed even. Sometimes our doctrine, the doctrines of grace and of God's sovereignty and salvation can lead us astray. Now, we, we pervert them. The doctrines are true, but we pervert them to say that means we don't have to do anything. We're not involved, and in fact, the less involved we are with this conversion stuff and this, and this terrible work of repentance and so on, the better off uh, we are, and, and, and God gets all the glory. Grace, grace, grace. Some people do that. They're called antinomian. There's some, however, and I met one this past week, who doesn't think there is a need of conversion. They're called perfectionists. So that after regeneration, they sin no more. And they can't understand you because when you say you're a sinner, they're questioning that you're, you're very conversion. So they'll use a text like this, 1 John 3, verse 9. 1 John 3 and verse 9. And I remember somebody else using this text on me before. 1 John 3, 9. Let me get that here before us. It says, There whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he's been born of God. So... We're sinless. Whoever has been born of God, regenerated, does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he's been born of God. In fact, the implication is, if you sin, you're proving you're not regenerated, because you cannot sin. The seed, the, the life seed of the Holy Spirit himself is in you. You've been born of God. Well, what do you say to that? What do you say to a man or woman or whatever Maybe a child or some Methodist perfectionist who says this is proof that we are, we can be relatively perfect, if not absolutely perfect, in this life. Well, beloved, here's what you say, and this is nasty. You say this other scripture says that. Oh, and there's nothing that's so nasty for someone who has one text. We have the whole Bible. That's a good thing. Because Jesus is very clear, the Apostle John is very clear. Right in the very epistle, in 1 John 1, verses 8 and 9. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. There it is, two chapters over. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, we're admitting it, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, hardly worth the bother, is it? But for the salvation and the redirection of a soul who thinks he's perfect is very important to take the time to address this problem of a one-text Christianity and a one-text Christianity that flatters you into thinking that you're a perfection, that you're perfect, and you don't need converting because, well, you're there. Never mind David. He wasn't near along as far as we are, or Peter who denied the Lord. Were all the Latter-day Saints, not Mormons, real saints in these latter days who have problems with sin? Never mind Romans 7, where the Apostle Paul regenerated, says, The good that I would, I do not. The evil that I would, I do, that, that I do. O wretched man that I am. Never mind Galatians 5, where the Apostle also says, The flesh lusts against the spirit so that you cannot do the things that you would. 
The whole of the Bible is about this regeneration and conversion. God works in us and gives us new life, and we still need to be converted every single day. Every single day, every single moment, turned from sin, kept from sin, repentant about sin, sorrowing it and rejoicing in that thing called righteousness and that gift from heaven. The Bible speaks that the workout must continue, the working out of salvation. And that's the second thing. There's a problem about the conversion of ourselves. Some of us exhausted of life Life, repenting, and uh, walking in faith, we lose our passion, don't we? We can lose our passion. And you note how the, the catechism reminds us that conversion is a very passionate thing, or you better question whether you are converted or being converted. Mortification of the old man is a sincere sorrow of heart that we provoke God, and it involves hating sin, and fleeing from sin. Quickening of the new man is a sincere joy of heart with love and delight to live according to the will of God in all good works, no matter where, no matter what. Converted people or passionate people are or they are not, and they are not converted. And if they are not, they are simply almost Christians, like Agrippa was. Almost, you persuade me to be a Christian. I've heard the doctrines, I've heard it, and I've gone through the motions, but almost is all that I can muster. It's a hard life as Christianity. can't be that hard. can't be that hard. I think I'll maybe go somewhere else. Maybe, that is, look somewhere else for some more sensational, satisfying fruit. This is what some people do. They're tired of the ordinary things of life and saying sorry a thousand times. And they write movies and movies that says love means never having to say you're sorry. What a bunch of hogwash. And they're just tired. So, again, this past week, some of the sensational fruit could be let's go speak in tongues. Let's, 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 Revive the gift of healing and of the gift of knowledge that the early church had. And let's, let's see if we can pray to God for this stuff. Because certainly that, that's more impressionable and that, that's more impactful, I should say. That's something that can stir us and really moves people and gets the people in the church and then keeps them spellbound by what you can do these fruits of the Holy Spirit are these gifts of the Holy Spirit. Let's go after these. And so the fruit of the Holy Spirit, like love and joy and peace and meekness and saying sorry to your wife and sorry to your husband and, and being reconciled instead of fighting all the time, that we don't like that. But all this other stuff. And Emma Lou, she came up and she was in a wheelchair and the guy said, you're now healed, and she walked out. That's the kind of stuff that we need to be involved in personally to seek these things. Beloved, I know whereof I speak. Involved many moons ago in some charismatic 
community. And every morning we prayed as hard as we could to speak in tongues. A very musical group of men living single for the Lord. The Word of God community that didn't have the Word of God. But they sure had some fruits of the Spirit, whatever the Spirit that was. Beloved, the Apostle speaks of those sensational gifts as apostolic gift and gifts and foundational gifts. The church is built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles and doesn't go back to the foundation except to build on it. We're not stuck with, but we are glad with, the ordinary thing called conversion, the ordinary process and fruit. So we're biblical, we're prayerful, we're, we're faithful. And for those of you who have a problem with Philippians 12, uh, 2, 12, and 13, where the apostle says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, and they think that Paul here is not being a Calvinist to speak anachronistically, um, the Greek preposition is work out of your salvation. God works in you, both the will and to do of his good pleasure. The Apostle Paul says, work out of that. Not work it out as if you contribute to it, but work out of it. The idea is that you are saved. Now, here's how you handle it. Here's how you exercise the muscle of faith. Work out of it. Have everything based on salvation in the blood and in the resurrection. Don't try to earn anything with God. Don't try to... Out God, God, and out God yourself, and out God everybody else, but work out of that salvation that gives glory to God that's biblical and prayerful and believing and that leaves you exhausted and nothing because you're denying yourselves, but Christ is everything in you. Trust in the grace of Christ and use the means of grace, the church. We hardly need to say this in this founded Christian church, grace and the means of grace, God is pleased to use this to convert us and for us to be involved in this personal working out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Keeps us, doesn't it, from a lot of bickering and fighting. We can get so caught up with the way people do things, can't we? Maybe what they wear, new person in church, they say things differently, different accent, whatever. And we can get, let this get to us, can't we? And uh, I think a lot of trouble in the church would stop, like right dead in its tracks. If we'd only mind our own business, and our own business, which is working out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Not everybody else's. Your own first. Boy, then you'll take the mote out of your own eye, the beam, before you dare go to somebody else with their alleged faults and sins. But now, moving on, we convert others. Apostle Paul was converted to convert others. Church of Jesus Christ is converted to be a converting place. A place where discipling of people goes on. Where the call of the gospel sounds forth and people are called to repent 
not for the first time, for the thousandth time. And to forgive and to know the forgiveness of God in that way. And to be holy as God is holy, without which holiness no man shall see the Lord. We're warned, we're threatened, we're encouraged, we're guided in this church here. And then wherever we go, you who hear the word, I who hear the word, we go having heard the word and we become these gospelers. And there's light as on as that shone on a Damascan road one day long ago that shined in our hearts. We haven't had this spectacular conversion experience. That's not the point. It's the fact that we've been converted and are now seeking to shine that light to others that matters. So we seek the salvation of people, others, Go into all the world, disciple the nations. That's the great commission in Matthew 28. Paul's commission of Jesus was to open the eyes of the Gentiles, to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. This is what Paul did. He went to the Gentiles after the Jews that they should repent and turn to God and work, do works befitting repentance. This is what the church of Jesus Christ has always done. Sought the salvation of souls. David, when he was converted, said, Oh, I long for the day of the renewal of the joy of salvation that I might teach others of the forgiveness of God. You see, he knew he dwelt among sinners and fellow adulterers and fellow murderers and fellow whatever sinners. And he wanted to tell them the good news that God forgives sins. I know he could say, he forgave my shipload of sins, my scurrilous, shameful deeds of disgrace as the king of Israel. Nothing like that. A converted man to convert others. and Nothing like a converted church to convert others. That's why it's so important, beloved. As the reformers reminded us, to be reformed and always reforming. Churches need conversion. We need sanctification together. We need the word of sanctification and edification and godly elders and godly deacons and godly men in the households. We need this. God uses this. and We need to help one another in the body of Christ here. Then, I want to point out there's a real problem here with regard to many even in the broad evangelical world and even in the Reformed world. We are called, as the Apostle Paul was, and the church has always been, to convert souls, not states or governments or cultures. We are called for the sole conversion of the elect of God, not, as some think, for the conversion of culture, including government, the arts, the economy, or the Kiwanis Club. We are called to this noble, high calling as Christians. Because Christ is crucified, because he's risen again, Because this is the need that people be risen from the dead and turn from the power of Satan unto God. 
to preach for the conversion of souls, sinners who need the grace of God. There is a foundation called the Providence Foundation that begs to disagree with that statement that I just made. Need to bring this to your attention. They are interested in this foundation since 20 years ago, I suppose. The conversion of souls not only, but the transformation of nations. So the leader quit the ministry, the gospel ministry, to engage in what is an educational ministry and how to train leaders to transform the culture. For this, for the impetus for this and the ground, the biblical ground for this, he cites Matthew 28, not only go and disciple the nations, nations, but also the cultural mandate, so-called in Genesis 1 and 2, be fruitful and subdue the earth. Closer to home, not too long ago, a United Reformed preacher was calling for the conversion of culture. Calvin College or university is all about this, the transformation, the renewal of culture, one uh, common graced soul at a time. You see, the gospel preaching of John 3.16, for example, isn't enough. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but be saved. We need other things to be preached so that Sinners are not only saved, but the whole culture for the glory of God. The nations are themselves transformed to be pleasing to God and to be a kind of Christianized society. At stake, so they say, is the future of Christian civilization. Well, beloved, just a few things on this, though more needs to be said Uh, maybe in another sermon. We're speaking here of conversion and the calling of the converted to convert nations, disciple nations. And what I've been saying here and presenting this this way is that there's a distraction going on in addition to the Great Commission that involves the church being so led deviously, I believe, and mysteriously and unwisely from the foundation that is Jesus to another realm, the realm of this world which needs Christ, not just culture, and to another sort of victory as we shall see. Matthew 28, let us be clear, verses 18 through 20, is a calling to disciple the nations. But it is not a calling to disciple the culture or transform somehow the culture so that now there's Christian sonatas that are made and sung and and, uh, Christian poetry and Christian uh, film arts and so on. That's at the point of the Great Commission. We're to disciple the nations this way, in discipling the peoples of the nations. That's what the word genos means or ethnos means, nations and in their different ethnicities and cultures, ethnos means peoples of nations. That obviously is the commission of our Lord Jesus, because then he says this discipling involves them observing all things that he has taught and commanded people to do. And the result of this discipling of the nations is a baptizing them, into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. That's a Christian thing. 
That's a salvation of sinners thing. That's an introduction into the covenant thing. Nothing less or different or cheaper than that. The discipling of the nations is the salvation of the nations, and that's exactly what happens. When souls of sinners are saved here and there in Comstock Park down to Grand Rapids and over in Linden, Washington and wherever else you go, Italy or Dutch or the Holland or wherever, when those souls are saved, the nations are saved and those souls being saved from every nation, tribe and tongue. So that at the end of time in Revelation chapter 5 we read, those nations are represented in Revelation 5 so that they are redeemed and they celebrate the God who's redeemed us to God by his blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. So the salvation, the great commission of Jesus is the salvation of nations, not this fulfillment or uh, of a cultural mandate, but if we want to be accurate on this, the commission is one. There's one commission of Jesus Christ. Save this world. Save my own. Retrieve the lost for whom I died and for whom I live and who will be in heaven. Save the world. I'll just make it a nicer place to live with maybe nicer laws and so on. And I don't mean to minimize that, as we'll see presently, but the Great Commission is so great because it's the one commission of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the fulfillment of the cultural mandate is in that fulfillment of the Great Commission seen. The salvation of nations, in fact, as Paul reminds us, is the salvation not only of the people of God, but it is the bringing into this wonderful society of Christians also the brute creation. Romans 8 and verses 19 through 23 remind us that there is this whole creation groaning and laboring with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also have the first fruits of the Spirit, even ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption of uh, the redemption of the body. But this creation, which is taken into the nations, is that also which will comprise the world, the new heavens and the new earth. But it is nothing different than the nations being saved. We need to understand this. The church in her relation to the world is not uh, so clearly brought out in the Bible except that we are not called to be of the world. We are of Christ and in this world. We are, in fact, called to be salt and light in the world. And wherever we go, we influence people that way. They look at us and they see that we're different. Some are transformed in their thinking by that. Some business people transform their business practices. Politicians, Christian politicians can influence society and so on. But the calling is to stand up for the crown rights of Jesus in that society. And the conversion of people that we would have is the same conversion that Paul the Apostle uh, sought for of King Agrippa. I would that you were just like me. He doesn't say anything about Agrippa's policy. He's speaking to Agrippa's soul and the thing that matters the most. 
Exalted Christ Jesus is exalted in this amazing work of his through the church converting the nations. He is not exalted in a kind of quasi-Christianizing of the nations. He is exalted when his blood shows its great power in redeeming the nations, in covering sins, in saving saving Muslim sinners and culture despiser sinners like Agrippa and you and me. That's how Jesus is exalted and shows he's the king of kings. So we have no goal as reformed people of a transformed kind of society except to be the church of Jesus Christ. We don't know how this society is going to be in the next 30 years or not. There may be some Christians that are brought back into the government. Be glad for that, to have a witness there in society. But after all, excuse me, after all, our goal is the salvation of whole societies, not just there being a nice place to live with liberties. That's great. We're thankful for that. I know we have all our opinions about this, not down on patriotism. But when it takes the place of the gospel, we have a problem, a real problem. The blood of Jesus Christ is not availing for this kind of Christianization of society and so that there's something here that seemed to be pleasing to God that really isn't. This is so very important. The next Lord's Day or the next question's Lord's Day speaks of true good works, true good works that are pleasing to God. The true good work that's pleasing to God is his own work from the heart according to the Bible and to the glory of God. And when societies in this, this vain attempt to convert societies are transformed only partly to be kind of Christian, to grant this and that and the other thing that enables Christianity, if that's our goal, the only goal, the goal that even is right alongside the conversion of souls, alongside John 3.16, we need another thing, and we have a problem, a compromise of our calling. The Bible, let's remember, says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Jesus reminds us, what is a prophet? If a man gains the whole world and loses his own soul, to which we would say, also, of course, nothing. What does it profit God himself if he gains the world without a soul? If he gains the world gains a society in this so-called attempt to transform society into some kind of civilization that is pleasing to God. If that's the case, they're a society full of God-haters still. They're not converted. They're a society that mocks Jesus Christ. They're a society that mocks the church because it's only the church. It's not the cultured. Beware, beware. The gospel is for the soul of things, the soul of people, the soul of the one nation under God, which is the church of Jesus Christ. Beloved, that's why we preach. That's why we're here, for conversion. That's why the apostle Paul was right before... uh, King Agrippa. 
And that's why we preach here. And the result of this will be conversion. And this is my final point. The result is we're converted. As we preach conversion, as we seek to be converted, as we convert the nations by the grace of God and with the word of God, there's conversion. God's cause will triumph. That's victory. Oh, we may not gain a a great following. We might not go along with others who would say, we need also the society converted and transformed somehow, and let's just leave off the gospel here, and let's just do this and that. not saying that we shouldn't bring water and shouldn't ourselves be influential where we can be, but it's the goal of conversion of souls that we seek. Beloved, the nations, they will come to honor Christ at the judgment day. They will be condemned, all who have said to the Apostle Paul and said to us, almost you persuade me to be a Christian, but not enough. You don't say enough. In fact, literally, King Agrippa doesn't just say, almost you persuade me to be a Christian. He says, in a little time. A little time with a couple of little different things you've said. You persuade me to be a Christian, but it's not enough. It's more damning than the King James has it almost. This is just, he's saying, Paul, you've just done too little. You said too little. You've had such a little time. It's really not convincing. He's not convinced by the apostle. Beloved, people are not convinced by us when we preach. It's not enough for them. King Agrippa and Queen Bernice, his incestuous sister, in Acts 25 are described as entering into the halls of Festus with great pomp, Acts 25, 23. That great pomp is significant. That's the world. Great pomp. Great vanity. Literally, it's fantasy. They live in a fantasy world. A fantasy of a world, they're on top. Agrippa's problem was God isn't on top. There is no God. There is no resurrection. There is no Jesus who rose from the dead. There is no need of forgiveness. This is this world. Let's be real. The world needs more than culture and everything else. It needs Christ, the Lord, and the Savior whom that world is persecuting in its denial and culture despising of him. Let's be not like the world, but show the God who's also not like the world, who's angry with sinners every day and is calling men everywhere to repent and be saved. Bring that word, beloved, with all the urgency of a man who is dying, and a woman who's dying, and a church that loves the death of Jesus and the life of Jesus, preach with urgency. Live with urgency. Be together on this. This is the word of God. There's lots of things that could be said about how to apply the truth to culture, to government, and so on. And we're a thankful people in our free land. But we're free to do one thing, to set the people free from sin. Go on. People of God, you're converted to convert. God be praised. Amen.
We pray, Lord, that you would bless the offering of sermon and our hearing. We pray to draw near to you, Father. We pray that you would turn our souls to you. You would turn us so that we can say, when somebody asks us, how was church? You say, I was converted. I was turned to God. There was something there I needed to hear, some pride in me that needed to be beat down, some perversity that needed to be corrected, some way I needed to be encouraged. Lord, thanks for being here. Thanks for being with thy servant and to declare the word all day. And may we, Lord, go in that rest, powerfully convicted of your great mercy to us. In Jesus' name, amen.